Welcome to Sex Spoken Here with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I am a sex coach and relationship psychologist and created this show to help you solve any sexual problems, learn about all things sexy, sensual, and intimate, and create your ideal lasting relationship. In my virtual therapy room, I answer questions, interview experts, and provide tips that you can use straight away. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create a problem-free, exciting sex life. Make sure you join us to be up to date on all events and to easily access coaching at www.the-intimacy-coach.com. Welcome to my virtual therapy room. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, and this is Sex Spoken Here. Remember that this podcast deals with adult themes, so if you don't have privacy, you might wish to put on your headphones. Today, I'm starting my series on risk assessment in relationships with the topic of consent. Consent is the foundation for all sexual agreements and relationships. Some feel the current emphasis on consent is too intense and make fun of the idea of having to ask for permission each step of the way in a sexual encounter. Others feel that we don't take consent seriously enough and we make far too many assumptions. Joining me today to discuss this is Kitty Stryker. Kitty Stryker is a degenerate writer, queer activist, and authority on developing consent culture in an alternative communities. She was the founder of consentculture.com, a website that ran for four years as a hub for LGBT kinky poly folks looking for a sex critical approach to relationships and this site has just been relaunched. Kitty also co-founded the artsy, sexy party Kinky Salon London, as well as being the head of cosplay for queer gaming convention Gamer X. Having finished Ask, Building Consent Culture, an anthology through Thorn Tree Press, which is coming out in October, Kitty tours internationally speaking at universities and conferences about feminism, sex work, body positivity, queer politics, and more. She lives in Oakland, California with her wife, boyfriend, and two cats, Foucault and Nietzsche. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So I, I have to say first, I love your cats' names. <laughs> Thank you. Just had to Nietzsche say Nietzsche is on walkabout right now. I don't know where he is, but Foucault is here, actually, right here with me. <laughs> Wonderful. So, I, you know, this is always such a um, hot topic, and it sparks probably more debate and more arguments than any other topic, the topic of consent. Yeah. Where, where do you think we are with that now? Well, I think that um, there's still a lot of work to be done in explaining to people that whether or not consent feels sexy, it's still mandatory. <laughs> um, so I think that there's that as a starting place. I also think that we could teach a lot more in how to make checking in about consent more of a part of our flirtation process. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that part of that is going to be addressing more complicated consent issues like body language or reading between the lines, um, which I think people are very hesitant to talk about because it's very easy to misread. Uh, a lot of what I try to explain to people is that, like, someone might be saying like, yes, this is okay with me, but their body language is saying no. So like, 
it's important to register both of those things at the same time. Yeah, I, I mean, I always wonder if part of that is about is, as as a culture, um, we don't do ambivalence well. No, I mean a, ambivalence is definitely that that last step of adolescence into adulthood, and many people never get sitting with ambivalence, and so when you're getting one message from body language and the other message from the mouth, that may be somebody who's simply ambivalent, but they don't have a way to express that because right. sitting with that doesn't feel okay. They feel a right. need to either say yes or no. Sitting in that middle ground feels very uncomfortable. For sure. For not just for the person feeling the ambivalence, but for the other person, yeah. I think, you know, it's like we're, we're taught a lot that like, yes needs to be enthusiastic or nothing at all and I mean I've been a sex worker for 14 years I don't think I should have to give enthusiastic consent my consent should be good enough um, sometimes I say yes to things because I'm ambivalent and I'm like eh, if it makes you happy that's honestly enough for me um, I don't I don't need to be super into it right now um, and I think that that's it's really complex and we start to acknowledge that as a type of consent because yeah. that's where violations can also happen. Yep. So, you know, I, I think that becomes really complex. And I, and I also think that, you know, there are people like us who actually think about the nuance and the different levels. So for us, you may get different kinds of consent out of me for the same reason, right? Because I actually consider that I think about it in, um, in a power exchange relationship, I, you know, I give over a, quite a lot, which is just a blanket consent. Mm -hmm. And I think people find that really hard to kind of deal with. It's like, well, did you set your hard limits? It's like, well, we have a long-term relationship. We know each other really well. There are no hard limits anymore. You know, right. he knows me. He'll push. And he also, there are places he would never go. But that's about... That's that's about our interrelationship and our back and forth. But to somebody else who is not experienced in that way and doesn't think of it in many level ways, it would look like there's no consent being given. Right. And it's dangerous when you're in public and you're doing things when people can see that because they that's what they internalize. And then they think, well, yeah, this is OK, then, you know, when right. actually there's that's the idealized BDSM relationship yeah. is one in which communication doesn't need to happen because they can just read each other's minds like I see that all the time please no I mean there's tons of communication you just may not see it exactly it might be a lot more subtle than other people recognize. oh yeah I mean he, he notes like you can note the tense you know muscle tensing in the back or you know I mean there's a huge number of, of things that you can pick up and see if you're if you know your partner well and you're observant that will tell you where they are and then you can ask a question and communicate from there the other thing for me, I think that's a really difficult issue is the issue of substances and consent. And this is mm -hmm. across the board with sex. Now, you know, I, I'm honest, I drink very little, um, mostly because I fall asleep. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't really engage in other things much anymore. You know, I really enjoy being very present for the sexual activities that I engage in. And I actually get so high being present that it, it doesn't, 
not a big deal to me. Mm -hmm. But I know other people do other things recreationally and I'm not, a, you know, I'm not the moral police and I don't actually morally have anything against that. Where I get stuck is the idea of consenting to things when someone's intoxicated. Because in my world, you cannot consent if you're intoxicated. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do a lot of consent workshop stuff at places like Burning Man, for example, mm -hmm. where being intoxicated is fairly likely. Um, or, you know, I did some consent workshops at gay male sex parties where, again, intoxicants mm -hmm. were part of the culture. Um, being in London, I was shocked. I mean, I came from San Francisco where nobody drank or did drugs ever in a sex party environment. Then oh, I went God, to over here they do it all the time. Yeah, in London, everyone was drunk and everybody was high. And it was a huge like shift for me to be like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, is it is it okay for me to project my beliefs onto this whole culture? So the way that I honestly dealt with it the best, I think, is that I came to a conclusion that I don't believe that anyone can give 100% consent under a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. I, I just don't believe that. I think that we're all under all of these external pressures to give consent or to go along with coercion when we don't actually want to do those things. And as long as I believe that, then, you know, I think that you're always open to being wrong and to making a mistake, which means that if somebody is high, and you think that you're having a good consensual conversation, by engaging with that person, you're also accepting the fact that you could be wrong. And yeah. you might cross the boundaries, and you are committing, in my mind, to dealing with that process and being accountable to it. Right. And if you the way that I generally joke about it with, with partners is I'm like, if I'm not willing to go to jail for this sex that we're about to have, then if I don't like you that much, then we're not going to do it. Like, I have to care about you enough to be willing to take that level of consequence. And that makes sense to me because it's like, it's like, I, I mean, I think if you're with your partner of 30 years and you decide to have to, you know, smoke a spliff and then get engaged in some sort of activity, let's choose a dangerous thing because it's easier, you know, like some sort of intense edge BDSM edge play, you know, were you able to give, uh, you know, really proper consent, probably not, but you're with this person 30 years, you know them well. And so if something goes wrong, they're going to stand there and, and, and be there with you. But if you've met somebody at a party for the first time and you're stoned and they're stoned or you're straight and they're stoned, which I think for me is worse. You're both stoned. It's a little bit less of an issue, but you're straight and they're stoned and you're asking them to do something. See, for me, that I would have the same attitude. It's like, ooh, how am I going to know if you really mean yes in this in this circumstance, if you're really able to understand what I'm asking you? Yeah, well, I mean, I would take it a step further. As somebody who is kind of a community leader and has been doing this kind of work for a really long time, even if there's no drugs or alcohol involved, I have to think that through for myself because someone might say yes to me for a million reasons that are not their consent. Exactly. They might say, like, oh, yeah, I want to do this because I want to say that I fucked Kitty Stryker. Right. Or they might want to say yes because they're afraid that if they don't, 
they'll be shunned. Right. You know, and right. So whether or not, I mean, like drugs and alcohol can be involved or not. Like, no, but I think that's a really important point because it's one of the things that you talk about with, it's like, why, why can't a psychologist ever have sex with a patient or a cut or a client or whatever? Why? Because there's a, there's a power dynamic there. Yep. That's why. And so it's open to abuse because of that. So people might consent to something simply because of the power dynamic. What you're Absolutely. talking about is another example of that. And I think that we don't talk about those things and we don't think about those things. We only kind of look at them in terms of the major financial contractual relationships. That's when we talk about it. Like, so, you know, right. doctor shouldn't screw you, that sort of thing. But we don't talk about it when you're talking about figures in the community where there's just as much of a power dynamic. And, you know, when I was, when I started uh, consentculture.com, uh, one of the things that we did was we did a blog carnival where people could anonymously, um, they could write to us via a burner email, so it was as anonymous as possible, and tell their stories. And more often than not, it was kind of sobering, dare I say, to realize that most of the time the people who are committing these violations were community leaders. I know, and I'm thinking of, I think of situations, there's there's nuance again. So I know of one situation with a community leader who was involved in a relationship, negotiated with another person to have sex with them. In fact, negotiated with that person's um, dominant to have sex with them along with the submissive, but didn't tell the person that he was in relationship with. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a huge consent violation right there. Yeah. Big, big. Not, but people would say, yeah, of course, he violated the consent of the person he's in a relationship with. Well, yes, of course, but no. Violated the consent of the other person that he wanted to have sex with. Opened yeah. up a whole shitstorm of stuff. Because he wasn't honest and straight. And that that's what this is about. It's about straight talk and honesty and thinking things through and thinking about consequences and being grown up. Well, and, and I'd argue that one of the biggest problems that we have is we don't have a system of consequences outside of the prison industrial complex. No. Like, the only consequence that we know of is to get the police involved. And for a lot of alternative sexualities, for queer people, for people of color, for trans people, it's not safe to get the police no. involved. No. Like, it's worse to get the police That's involved. That's right. So, like... What are we going to do instead? And like that is a huge part of what Ask Building Consent, Consent Culture was about is what do we do instead of getting the police involved? And like it's been interesting because uh, some of the people who reviewed the book were like upset that there wasn't enough of a like blueprint for like, well, here's what you do instead. And the reason I didn't want to do that is that it completely depends on your community. It depends on how far along everybody is in terms of talking about consent culture. Like, you can't have a safe and um, valid transparency process or um, community accountability process if people don't even know what that language means. And like, and, yeah, and, and lots of them don't. I mean, there will be people, there will be a, a wager, a number of people, quite a number of people listening to this that have no idea what you just said. Absolutely. It sounds like complete gibberish. Like, 
So um, to, to spell it out a little bit, like one of the things that I generally do with different communities is give them alternatives to getting the police involved. Sometimes that might mean training a couple of people to take victim stories mm -hmm. and give them options that make sense for their local community. So it might be like, okay, I will come with you if you want to make a report to the police, I will come with you as an advocate right. and help you do that. It might be, I will help you get in contact with other local parties so that you can tell your story and then they'll make a decision about how involved this person's going to be in their communities based on your story. Um, it might be, I'll help you mediate with this person so that you can come to a, a resolution. Yeah, and like that might be something. Um, I try to help people a lot in the Bay Area where like we have a lot of passion for the idea of accountability processes, but there's not a lot of responsibility after the initial calling out. So a lot of people will call you out and say like, oh, this person is an abuser, this person is a rapist. But the only conclusion that they have for that is that let's isolate this person from community. Well, that's not generally safe for other communities because this person inevitably I will go to another. Well, yeah, no, and I remember a situation that started in San Francisco with somebody um, that I, I was on the fringes of that started in San Francisco, that went from San Francisco to Ohio, that went from Ohio to Maryland, that went from Maryland to Florida. And there was mm -hmm. a huge amount of damage done. Huge. Yep. Because and there, part, of that, part of that's because communities don't talk to each other. That's right. And there was no way. Oh, I mean, other, or alternately, you try to talk to another community and they're like, yeah, that's just your personal problem. With well, this yeah, person. no. And I mean, like, it was it was awful. It was awful. People didn't talk to each other. And and many more people got hurt that needed to. It could have been managed much more quickly if people had spoken with each other and said, hey, this person has these issues and um, is not willing to do anything to address them. So, you know, you need to keep yourself safe. Yeah. And I mean, like one of the things, because a lot of people come to me and say, hey, like, here is this story that I've heard. This is the thing that I've experienced. And I tend to respond with like, okay, thank you for letting me know. I'm going to keep that on file. And right. like, I just keep an eye on people. I don't necessarily encourage them to be banned from a community because I don't think that that's helpful. But I'm generally the one called in to help have a conversation with that person about their behavior. Right. So being able to say, oh, well, I've heard this and this and this. Right. So here's what I And this is what I think a lot of communities miss out on. We want to accuse somebody, but we don't actually have any um, uh, punishment, <laughs> really. Well, yeah. I mean, the only thing you can do is say, yeah, all you can do is say, well, we shun you, go away. I mean, you know, that people don't actually think of things like how can you, if, if the person wants to be, still be part of the community, how can they rehabilitate? And one of the things that we did with Kinky Salon London was we had a yellow card, red card system. So if you broke one of the rules of our code of conduct, 
you would get served with a yellow card. One of the hosts would come up to you and say, hey, this is against our code of conduct. Don't do it again. And if they did it again, or if they did something that was egregious enough to get a red card right off the bat, and we said, okay, you can't come back to the party um, until you have literally written an essay about what you've done, what you should have done differently, how what you did violated our code of conduct, and how you're going to hold yourself accountable in the future. And honestly, we thought, like, first of all, this is London, where everybody wants to be high on drugs anyway. So we thought people would be like, yeah, whatever, we'll never go back to that party again. But we found that people would write the essay because they liked the party enough that having a carrot dangling of you can come back, but you have to own up to what you've done and say what you're going to do differently was enough to get people to reflect. And I was really surprised at that. And it was really, it was really powerful to see people willing to go through that process because they, they wanted to be a part of the community. And more often than not, the ways in which they were screwing up was what they were taught by society. Like that's what society teaches us to do is violate each other's boundaries. All the time. Yeah, I know. So I mean, it's hard to punish somebody for that when that's literally like, I was just watching uh, The Bachelorette, the terrible reality show. <laughs> and I saw there was one guy who asked The Bachelorette, like, I would like to kiss you. Would that be all right? And she visibly recoils from him for asking her. And then they kiss, and then she tells him, like, well, most people would just do it. And then when he does it, she obviously looks uncomfortable. But it's like, well, I, I like, what was he supposed to do then? He wasn't supposed to ask. He wasn't supposed to just do it. She wasn't saying, I don't want to kiss you. Like, I can understand you know, how I, a guy would be really confused. Well, and some of that, and I, you know, I, I see that quite regularly at events, out in public, you know, it's this, I see it a lot over here, I think, because we have the, because I, you know, I'm in London, right? So we have politeness things. And you know that, you remember that. People don't like to, it, it, it's like coming out and telling somebody to go away is not a British thing to do. No, It's no. really much more American. And so you end up in these situations with people. I'm very direct. So I, I'm American. They blame it on me being American. I've lived here yeah. half, half my life. So I know what the rules are here. Mm -hmm. But for me, the idea of, of being indirect it doesn't it doesn't suit it because people misunderstand so often. And sometimes you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. But isn't that better than allowing them to violate the hell out of your boundaries? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you know the cup of tea video. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I love this video. Um, I love the British version of the video, which was the original one from Thames Police. It just makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. What's been interesting is, is talking with young people and using that as a resource and really starting the conversation. And my son, uh, son's school this year. Um, so he just turned 15. So they're, they're, um, I guess ninth grade in the U.S. or tenth grade, ninth, tenth, right. you know that that ninth grade, um, and they, I actually was the one who sent the video along to the people who were teaching it and said you might want to try this as a first stop to start talking about consent. Yeah, and they said, 
okay. And they did. They used it. They thought it was great. But the fact that they finally started talking about it at that age. Yeah. Because I raised the issue. I said, are you planning on talking about consent? And they said, well, you know, we are planning. Well, we're not really sure what we're going to do. And, and, and I said, okay, so here are resources for you to yeah. use to talk about consent because that's actually the thing you need to do right now. It's one of the first things you need to do so that they start learning now because they're already, you know, involved with each other. I don't know why right. people think that 15 year olds aren't involved with each other, but yeah. and they, they don't have the information. And so I think, you know, I see changes happening with young people, but not so much with the older folks like me. We're very resistant. You know, like we we taught we were taught a thing, and we want to keep doing that thing, and like yeah. you know, <laughs> we don't understand why we should have to do it any differently. Um, I, I mean, also, like I have to admit, and like this is a process I went through when I was doing the consent culture work. I think part of it is that if we start to really sit down and think about consent culture and consent violations and the ways in which our boundaries have been crossed. It's very traumatic, and a lot of people don't want to sit down and think about that because I, I was traumatized for a year of just thinking about the number of experiences I had had as a young submissive woman in the BDSM community that were violations of my consent up to full-on sexual assault that I had just dismissed as like, oh, this is part of the learning process. I, I, lovely, I you know that line that's a lovely line though I hate that line people people say oh this is part of the learning process I'm like yeah it is but you got to process it first yeah yeah you can't dismiss it you know it's interesting because while you were saying that I was th I, I think about this for me um I have a trauma history and because I have a trauma history I spent a lot of time in my trauma and understanding where my boundaries were violated and because because I didn't understand where to put a boundary because my trauma was from when I was quite young. I didn't know where to put a boundary. So I was a really good target. And so I had to learn to set boundaries and, and I had to learn where they needed to go in order to, to keep myself safe. But it's interesting because I'm also part of the BDSM community. And um, it relatively recently, I suffered quite what was an intense consent violation for me in the middle of a public class. And I didn't feel that I could take the person to task in front of the class. So nope. I, I spoke to a friend of mine after the, this thing happened. And she said, you need to, you know, why didn't you say something to her? And I said, I wasn't going to call her out. I mean, I, I, you know, first of all, I felt, you know, I, I felt violated. I felt frightened. And I was like, I'm not going to call her out in front in pub in front of all these people. All these people, you know, that's incendiary. At the same time, the only way to have stopped the violation was to have done that, to actually have called the person out in public. Right. And so I was thinking about that later. I mean, you know, I wasn't sexually assaulted, um, but I was bruised really, really, really badly, far worse than I really. Um, needed to be in an area that I didn't need to be bruised. Right. Uh, and I was thinking about it and I thought, well, how to deal with this? Is there something that we can do 
to be able to deal with that? Is there something I can do to be able to deal with stuff like that in a way that both doesn't make it incendiary because it's in public, but also stops the violation? Because what I wanted to do, if if I if I'd done what I really wanted to do, I'd fucking hit the person. Yeah. Like take your fucking hands off of me. You had you didn't ask. Yeah. Right? You had no right to do that. You do not know me well enough to just, you know. Yeah. But that wasn't going to be helpful. <laughs> but that would have been the only way to have stopped it happening. Yeah. At the very beginning and to have gotten, you know. So I, it's complicated. I think about that and I think, well, it's complicated. So how, I mean, I'm not a wallflower. Yeah. And it's, and I think once you're like, oh, wow, if I, as somebody who teaches about this exactly. stuff, hesitate, God knows why, like, you know, of course all these other people but are hesitating. But that's the point. It's like, I'm not a wallflower. I'm pretty good at protecting myself. But in certain environments, and I know that it, I've had a couple of incidents in public classes because I'm so conscious of not calling somebody out in front of a large group. In private, well, I'm great. You know, and there's a performative aspect, yeah. you know, I mean, one of the things um, I did a, a survey about why people wouldn't safe word, and I found that women and genderqueer people tended not to safe word because they wanted to please their partner. And so they would not they would push themselves to not safe word so that their partner would be pleased with their behavior. And people who identified as men would not safe word because they wanted to seem tough. And like, once, like, as somebody who mostly identifies as dominant now, once I realized that, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, how am I ever going to know that I'm not pushing somebody's boundaries if there's these cultural constraints Indeed. that are preventing them from safe wording? Well, and it was funny because, it was funny because I, I, you know, I experienced that as a submissive woman. I hate safe wording. I hate safe wording, but I, but I actually have that weird combination of the male and the female. On the one hand, I hate safe wording because I love... I get off on them getting off on how far they can push me. So I get off on that. So I, yeah. I, I want to please them and I want to be able, I want to be able to be good at that, but I'm also tough as nails and I don't want to be seen as a wimp. Right. So whenever I safe word to me, it's like I'm wimping out. So there was this, this thing. It was a biting circle, right? Eight mm -hmm. people all bite you at the same time. And I'm not talking nibble. I mean, like, bite. Mm -hmm. And then you shout yellow when you're ready for everybody to stop, right? So my perception was that I shouted yellow immediately. <laughs> that was my perception, right? right. I felt like the biggest wimp on the planet, but I couldn't stand it. I'm like, oh, I'm such a wimp. And one of the women said to me, no, you lasted eight seconds, which was one of the longest. She said, I was surprised you didn't do it earlier and I was like yeah I, I don't know my perception was it was immediately so there I was fine because it was a fun fun activity but even then it was like oh here's all this self-judgment because yeah. you said enough like somehow well, you win a prize for going further well and that is and that is one of the things that's really concerning is that like I think that 
And it's one of the areas that we don't really talk a lot about because we talk a lot about someone violating somebody else's boundaries, but we don't talk about the ways in which we, we push ourselves, ourselves yeah. to allow ourselves to have our boundaries crossed yeah. in order to like feel better in some capacity. And like that's generally the area where somebody feels shitty about it months later and is like, oh, actually, that wasn't okay with me. Um, as a dom, what I started doing was I started implementing the safe word of mercy instead of yellow or red because that was something they could say in scene that would get me to back off, but it would be a submissive thing to say. Right. So they felt like they were saving face, and I got a check-in. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I find the whole thing really interesting from the point of view of, of the fact that it's a self-violation. I don't feel bad about mm -hmm. You know, the, the example I gave, that was fun. So it wasn't a problem. Right. But right. but I was aware of the self de self denigration afterwards. Like, oh, I was a wimp. Oh, I was a, you know, the whole point right. is you do it. You want to feel good. The whole point is it's supposed to be, it's supposed, it's supposed to be good. Be this is, this is, yeah. you know, this is sex. This is fun. So when it's not fun anymore, unless you're, you're, you're contracting with someone to, to like do some things that aren't too fun because that you're going to get off in an indirect way from doing that. That's different, right? But when it's not fun anymore, then that's the point to bail out. And I talked with a dominant about this recently, um, who was like, you know, when she plays with people for the first time or the second time, she like, she will actually push harder more quickly in order to get a safe word. Like she like almost like almost go too quickly to start to get a safe word because she wants to kind of know where that, edge is before the person's going to be wanting so much to please her that they won't say anything. Right. Right. You know? And so what she usually hears is whatever safe word they've chosen. And then, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hate when I do that. And she's like, no, 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 that's perfect. Perfect. Now I know where the edge is and I can, I can. Yeah. But it is, it must be, it must yeah. be. Well, I have to say for me, it actually pulled me away from kink a lot. Because I just got so nervous that I was going to cross somebody's boundaries without knowing it because of all of these external factors and because I'm a community leader and because, like, we're taught not to safe word that I was just like, you know what, I don't think I want to do this at all, actually. Yeah. Like, this just seems really it's dangerous. Scary. Unless I really know somebody... Like, I don't really trust myself or them or anyone or the community at large to handle this well. So I'd just rather not. And, like, it's really sad to me that that's, that's what happened through working with consent culture stuff is, you know, pulling away from the community because I just felt like um, I wasn't – I didn't feel sure that boundary violations would be treated with the respect that they deserved. That is sad. And I'd like to see us all do better. I mean, I know each, each, you know, it's not one united community by any stretch of the imagination and we won't go there sure. right now, but, um, but we need to do better. We really need to do better. Well, and one of the things that was important to me with this book is that I feel like we, I mean, we don't talk about consent nearly enough when it comes to sex. We definitely don't talk about it enough when it comes to everything else. No, and like a big part of the um, consent culture book was that sex is only one of seven categories. There's a lot of uh, talking about consent culture 
as it relates to the hospital or as it relates to the prison industrial complex or as it relates to education that I think is part of how we can actually create a safer environment to have consensual sexual encounters. Cool. I'm looking forward to the book. So when is this coming out? It's in October. Yes, October 27th is when it comes out officially on Amazon, but it is available for pre-order. Okay, so the link for pre-order is on the um, podcast notes. It will be on my website on the podcast notes on the podcast page. Um, and so anybody listening who's interested and wants to pre-order should go and do that. Is it going to be coming out on Kindle first or is it going to be coming out in hardcover or paperback or... Um, it'll be coming out in paperback. I, we do have an ebook version that will be available as well. I'm not sure if it's going to be available earlier or not, but it will be available. Okay, great. Um, and so I'll encourage people to have a look at that and, um, and continue this conversation. I think it's something that we all need to be thinking about and talking about. And although we talked quite a bit today about um, alternative relationships because both of us are involved in the alternative communities. Guess what, guys? If you're vanilla and you're straight, it, in some ways, this is even more important for you to talk about. Absolutely. Because those are the situations that end up with jail and court cases and things like that much more often than in alternative communities. So it's something you need to be thinking about. You need to take responsibility for yourself. And that's what this is about when we're talking about consent culture. It's talking about accountability and being a grown person. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And far, and far, and that's hard. And I, and I get that it's hard and far too often people avoid it because it's not sexy. It's not fun, but actually if you do it, then you have much more fun. You have much less on your mind. You have much less to worry about. Um, and, and uh, people have much better time in general. So it's worth going through the trauma of thinking about it and learning how to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. And you, are you planning on doing stuff to teach more brass tacks more widely? Yeah, well, I am actually, one of the things that I'm going to be working on, um, I just had an Indiegogo for my book tour and one of the things that I'm going to be putting out related to that is a zine that's called So You've Been Called Out, What Now? Um, Great. And it's going to be a guide, um, like an eight-page guide, on how to responsibly take ownership for violating somebody's boundaries in a way that recognizes the victim's feelings but also doesn't insist on you just spiraling into self-hate self-hatred um, and my hope is that there isn't really a resource like that there isn't really a place for people to go and learn about how to respond in a way that's not defensive um, and I would like to see us move to a place where if someone says hey you violated my boundaries people say oh shit I'm so sorry um, how can I help you feel safe right now rather than like no I didn't I'm perfect you're a liar yeah yeah. And I mean, I, you know, certainly um, there's so much room for scope, I think, in actually, you know, kind of not only developing print resources. And I mean, I just see so much room for scope in developing um, workshops around how to respond in that situation, 
around how to responsibly call somebody out, but also mm -hmm. around how to really responsibly set your own boundaries. You know, you, yeah. you, if you're not willing to ever set a boundary, you can't actually call people out for violating them. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say that you can't, but I would say that it complicates your ability to. Like, because I mean, you know, I'm still learning, you know, we're all still learning. So we'll, we'll never be perfect. Oh, I'm not talking about being perfect. I don't, I don't think we have to be perfect, but I think you have to at least be willing. I think that, you know, every, it's important when we are in interactions with other people to recognize that we could be wrong and we yes. fuck up. And like one of the things that I, like every time I do a workshop about consent, I just look around and I say, so uh, anybody in here who thinks that you've never violated somebody's boundaries, you're wrong. I can guarantee it. I would put money down that you're wrong. We have all done it. It might be that we hugged one of our friends who didn't want to be hugged, yep. didn't tell us, but like that that's the thing. Or someone said, oh, I'm really, you know, I've had enough to drink. I'm going to go home now. We said, oh, just stay for another drink. Like could be that. Yeah. We've all done it. And I think that the more that we can own up to that and be like, yeah, I have definitely fucked up, like the better. And I think that once we realize that those things are crossing people's boundaries, it helps us figure out what our boundaries are. Yep. So like now, my local bar, when I'm like, I've had enough, I'm going home, they're like, cool, got that. Because they know that that's me declaring a boundary and that's not me asking them subtly to push me to have another. Right. You know, like they know what that means now. So by owning my own shit, I was better able to like establish a boundary. Cool. I want to thank you for being here. I could probably chat with you for another couple of days because I think there's so much that we that we could do, and I'll uh, I'm certain to invite you back um, closer to the time of the book release. We should do another. Yeah, that sounds really great. Um, and so, thank you all for joining me on Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Please write to me with suggestions for the show and questions you want answered at drbisbee at theintimacycoach.com. That's the-intimacy-coach.com. Do follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and check out my YouTube channel. For a free 30-minute strategy session with me, go to www.the-intimacy-coach.com and click on the button that says Schedule Now. I look forward to seeing you all next week for part two of Risk Assessment in Relationships. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes or on Stitcher. And make sure you head over to www.the-intimacy-coach.com to subscribe for free newsletter updates to help you create and sustain an exciting trouble-free sexual life. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes on all topics, sexy, sensual, and intimate. Thanks for listening.